wherever there are shadows, there are people ready to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. This is Bleeding Daylight with your host, Rodney Olson. Welcome. Links to our social media accounts and many other Bleeding Daylight episodes are available now at bleedingdaylight.net. What would it look like if instead of faith being part of life, it informed every area of our lives? That's what our guest will talk about today. Please think about who else would benefit from hearing this episode and let them know where to find Bleeding Daylight. My guest today describes himself as a spiritual entrepreneur and mentor. Caesar Kalinowski is also a church planter, author and podcaster. He's trained people in more than 30 countries in discipleship and mission as a lifestyle. And I'm honored to have him as a guest today. Caesar, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking, getting to know you a little better as well. Looking through your bio, I'm inclined to describe you as a serial overachiever. I've mentioned a few of your endeavors, but there are many more on the list, some of which I'm sure we'll touch on as we talk today. Is there a thread that draws all those various strands of your life together? Well, I'm going to give you the Bible answer. I, I, Yeah, Christ, I have to say. I guess if I was to put a title on the whole thing, it's uh, I said yes. I, I feel like I'm the luckiest boy in the world. The things that we've got to experience and the places we've been able to help people make disciples and train others to do the same, plant churches, it's really quite amazing given uh, my upbringing, kind of raised by wolves and a broken family, that type of thing, my wife as well. But I also know that God has gifted both my wife and I sort of as uh, entrepreneurs or apostolic gifting to the church, that type of thing. So I think there's a theme that runs through all the myriad of ministry activities we've been able to be a part of. And we're also serial business entrepreneurs as well. We've done a whole lot of that. For us, it's all about starting, equipping, and then working ourselves out of a job and moving to the next thing. So I guess there's a theme in that. I see that there is a proliferation of people these days calling themselves life coaches. And and when a 20-year-old tells me that they're a life coach, I wonder how much experience they have to coach from. That's yeah. not the case with you. Tell us a little about some of the things that you've been involved in that really have equipped you to be training others. I agree with you. The The term life coach, is it's a little all-consuming for me. I, I We say we coach people. <laughs> <laughs> and we mentor them. We've been down the road a little longer. My wife and I have been doing this a pretty long time. Uh, as far as life and kids and marriage, we've been married a really long time. Our, we have three grown children. It really is uh, an act of grace. They still love God and they love people and they're our best friends. And now we have a few grandkids because of all the business opportunity. And we've really never separated business from family, from ministry. It's always kind of been one lifestyle. And, and we endeavor to treat people like family, be it if they're you know, a staff member or someone at, you know, working for you know, one of our businesses we had for years and years was a, a restaurant. Uh, whatever it would be, or working at a mega church with lots of staff and hundreds of volunteers, trying to treat people like family. And I think the diversity of those experiences and having been privileged to work in over 30 countries and I don't know how many hundred cities now, it's given us a, a wealth of understanding the commonalities of people and human hearts and how discipleship really is sort of acultural in many ways. While we do need to enculturate contextually and be good missionaries and 
sort of put on the flesh as it were. It's uh, surprising how similar people are, regardless of the context that they find themselves in. It's interesting that you're talking about this whole lifestyle kind of thing, in that so often in Christian circles, we hear people separating life out into the sacred and the secular. And yet what you're talking about is something that encompasses all and says this is a lifestyle. It's, It's not being in business and being in ministry and being here or being there. It's all life. Help me unpack some of that. I was raised going to church and really bad theology. You know, the church was the building or the program or the denom or whatever. And come to find out, no, people are the church. (laughs) I think we all know that, but we still kind of all say, hey, well, I'm going to church on Sunday or whatever. The way we were raised, though, life was very bifurcated. It was very separated into these programs, these buckets, if you will. And I started realizing that the Christianity or the gospel, let's go there, the gospel that I was taught and introduced to was really primarily a gospel concerned with my afterlife and getting my afterlife upgrade and avoiding hell and getting heaven and all that type of stuff. What Christianity then became, unfortunately, was sort of a behavioral modification in sin management program. Try to sin less between now and when Jesus gets back or you die and you go meet him. And we realized, wow, wait a second. What if what Jesus said is real and what I see modeled in the New Testament in the early church was an all of life thing, then do we get to live that way? And I was doing quite a bit of international missions work, what we the church would traditionally refer as missions and going all over the world and into some pretty hard places where there's a lot of Christian persecution and war zones, natural disasters, things like that. And whenever I found myself with the church for weeks on end, they often were like, say, in Sudan during the war. They had nothing. The church had no things. Literally, you'd go there year after year, the people would be wearing the same tattered, filthy clothing because they didn't have a home and they didn't have a washing machine or lots of clothes or phones. The church had no buildings. They had no microphones, no programs. But boy, did they have joy. They had life in Christ and a commonality, and we joined them in being the church, not going to church or putting on church, but being the church. And as I would do these trips, increasingly it became harder and harder to sort of come home and just put on a church service. And over many years, I found myself on staff as a pastor at a very large mega church in the Chicagoland area. And I was, crazy enough, head of production. And so it was my job to put on those large services for thousands of people. And if I was preaching, my head was up on the screen, 15 feet big head and all that. And then I'd be back on, you know, on a plane and I'd be spending weeks in Sierra Leone or in Burma or whatever. And again, being the church. And we'd come home and we'd say, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to live like that all the time? Do we get to? It turns out we do get to. And I can remember... Rodney, having a time when I was so broken over this and just saying, Father, God, I would would give everything I have in my life and comparatively a lot, right, compared to so many parts of the world and these people, if I could have what they have in you, so much joy and such a deeper connection. And I, I remember it was almost audible. The Spirit of God said, well, then do. And it led us on this journey to out here from Chicagoland to Tacoma, Washington, sort of up in the northwest part of our country here in America uh, to say, what if we lived like missionaries, like a family of missionaries together with a handful of other people sent to another country called Tacoma? (laughs) And we'll just enculturate and we'll live like them and we'll 
treat everyone like family, and we'll live like we're missionaries sent here and try to make disciples of Jesus. What would happen? Well, it was amazing what happened. And along the way, we've really learned how to live that way as a lifestyle, as you were saying and asking, and treat everyone like family. And as we saw people coming to faith and communities multiplying, we were able to then regather or recongregate, if you will, those people in all kinds of different ways and see lots and lots of what are commonly called missional communities formed, but then also lots of new church congregations springing up. And then that that started to spread out all over the country and now worldwide. It was really quite an amazing thing to watch. How do you think we got off track? How do you think we took go and make disciples of all nations into go and hand out tickets to the afterlife in all nations? How did we start to skew that? And how do we start to bring that back into making disciples? Wow, great question, important one. And I, you know, I can give a humble opinion here, or I'll attempt to be humble and give a, a thought here. I think where we got off path, where we got sort of off the track, was when we lost what the true mission of the church was, and that's a gospel issue. So the mission of the church, the only one that I can find in the Bible that Jesus gave us, and I think everybody knows this intrinsically, but the mission is to go and make disciples. Somewhere along the line. When the gospel became this get everybody saved and get their afterlife upgrade program, that's God's work. God does the saving. That was done at the cross. Jesus says it is finished. How we actuate that is now by faith. How we experience that and live that out, it's by faith that we realize, yeah, <laughs> this has happened. This Jesus is Lord and, and we're saved. But the mission was never get everyone saved. Now, I know this might sound like heresy to some people, but I can't find it where Jesus ever says, go get people saved or Paul says that, or any of the people. What the, the, call, the call was always go and make disciples everywhere. As you go, make disciples. Help them move from unbelief to belief. And I think when all of a sudden the church started promoting a get everyone saved, get them their get out of hell card, say that magic Jesus in your heart prayer as the goal, as the mission, then we lost disciple making as the mission. And then when the church started waking up to like, hey, but we're supposed to disciple people, I guess. Well, then we were in such programmatic mode. We made discipleship instead of the only mission of the church and really a lifestyle, part of our whole life. We made it a little program of the church or a nine-week course or the 101, 201, 301, 401 classes. And once you get through that, well, you're discipled, I guess. So now just keep bringing everybody you can to church to get their afterlife upgrade. Say that magic prayer. I think that's how it got lost. How we get back to it is we we believe what Jesus said the mission of the church is, and that's to make disciples who make disciples. And that is just that statement everybody nods to in the church, and everybody, it's like a mystery because we have found that almost no one has really been discipled in an all of life, everyday way where the gospel speaks into everything, not just our sin and atonement and our afterlife, but it speaks into our marriage, our identity, our gender our hopes, our dreams, our fears, the things that have wounded us, the harm that's been done to us, our careers, our retirement, our parenting, all that. The gospel does speak to all that. And that's really what discipleship's about, moving from unbelief to belief in light of the gospel in every area of life. And if we're going to disciple people in every area of life, then we've got to do every area of life with them, not just an hour, hour and a half, sitting in rows once a week, largely in silence while a few people sort of do all the work. I know that you have traveled to many countries and been training people in many countries, but what I've often found when traveling is that 
I get to learn as much, if not more, from the people that I'm actually there to meet with than I'm teaching. Has that been your experience, that as you've travelled from country to country, that you're training, you're leaving them with, with something, but you're gaining so much as you continue to travel around? Always. Yeah, I completely have felt that. And, and that's a big part of that story I was Sharon, we're with these churches, with these people, these dear saints all over the world who had nothing. And we we came away feeling like, well, I don't know how much we left them, but we certainly realized that they have integrated the gospel and their love of Jesus and the, the pulling together and treating everyone the way God does, like part of the family, because we need to, we get to. We're leaving with that. And that's now bumping up against all of our sort of Western understanding of family and the separation of church and state and my family from yours and Christianity, who's in and who's out. And they they weren't that way. Everybody was treated like, we're glad you're here. And heck, let's see if we can get some food today or or we're in a really dangerous area. Let's go over here. And, it, you know, all those things that, that seem ridiculous to us and we never really face and not in any great way. And most of us, we left with a sense of, Wow, that there's what the church is. Be the church. Don't go to church, but you get to be the church. I always felt that way. I always felt that way. And we would do ridiculous things sometimes, Rodney. We're we're going into an area and we're gonna we're gonna be bringing some good solid Bible teaching for these pastors because you know they haven't had all the seminary we've had, and we're gonna help them out. And we'd get there, and well, they're not literate. <laughs> you know, they don't. They don't read anything. Well, but we had stuff translated in their native tongue form and we give it to them. Well, they can't read it still. And since they don't own almost anything, they're never going to write in this thing because <laughs> they don't want to mess it up. But they also don't know what it says. So they're grateful to now own a thing. And, and then we would talk to them at very high level understanding of doctrine and all this stuff. And then, you know, it didn't really, it didn't really hit them. And we came away going, wow, what's going on? And I got I to share something that was marvelous. I, I ran into a, another missionary, a, a Southern Baptist missionary in South Sudan one time on a trip. What they were doing was they were making disciples and maturing the saints and planting church after church after church, all through story, all through narrative, and then a, a type of dialogue that they were doing with people that was their heart language. Boom, immediately. No translations needed, uh, and no books and uh, like printed materials because it was in their hearts. They were, it was locked in. They were memorizing it. When I heard about this, I, I thought, well, that, that's got to be great for illiterate cultures and people that don't have those things. But we're so smart here in the West, in, in America. We come on, like, look at all we have. And then, had an opportunity for that same missionary while I was on furlough in the States to take myself and our staff at the church, all these really educated, smart people <laughs> like me. And uh, they took us, he took us through the whole arc, the whole redemptive arc of the story of God in about five hours, six hours, all narrative and all series of dialogues. And when he got done, I was blown away at what I didn't know. I couldn't believe it. I was embarrassed, actually. I'm sure my peers here on, on the staff and other pastors, they, they must realize how little I really understand the Bible because what we just learned in five or six hours, I felt was more than I'd connected the dots in a whole life of church and Bible classes and you know all that and school and college. And it was crazy. And we have since been taught in how to do that. And we start all of our missional communities and all of our discipleship with telling the story of God 
and having meals with people and all that. So yeah, that, that we took away from others. We didn't, we weren't smart enough to realize everyone's heart language is story. It's interesting when we're talking about outlining the big picture of scripture and going through that, that five hours of this is really the set of understanding that we have, the, the beliefs that we have. This is the, the great story we get to enter into. And that's always essential to be able to outline this is what we believe. But more so, discipleship to me seems like follow along, see the way I live my life and live it. We're we're challenged when we hear Paul in the scriptures say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's like calling people to imitate me. And yet that seems to be what discipleship is about. It's watch the way I live. Do you think we're frightened of that because... We've just subscribed to a set of beliefs rather than living it out so that others can follow. I really do. I think the biggest barrier we've experienced to more and more people living discipleship as a lifestyle and growing in a fluency of the gospel, the language that speaks to everything, is that they start to count the cost of, well, wait a minute, we're going to have to start doing life with people, not just Sunday. We're going to have to open our homes. And what if there's dirty people and sinners and weird people in my home. and But I've got daughters. I've got kids. What what about all that? And they start to count those costs. And they go, well, but I've never seen what you're talking about modeled. And I kind of like having my life separated. And and I've even known really large mega pastors, mega church pastors that actually from the pulpit and at huge se- you know seminars and conferences say, you got to separate your family life from your ministry. You got to protect your family from all that. I'm like, wait a minute. If the gospel's good news for all of life and this church that you're building or you've built and you want us to invite everybody to is so awesome, <laughs> then why would we have to hide anybody from it? Why would why wouldn't it be the most life-giving part of our lives? Why wouldn't this be the richest thing in the world that we get to invite people in? And I think that does a lot of people have that fear. I've talked to lots of people who've maybe listened to our podcast or seen me speak, and they're like, boy, that all sounds amazing, but I don't have enough time for that. There's no way my wife and I and anybody in our church would ever do that. And I'm like, well, then you're too busy. Then you've. I would suggest you get to make some changes because it's the reason we were created and the reason we were saved is to be part of this eternal purpose of God filling the world with his glory. He promised to do that. Paul called it the mystery revealed. How's he going to do that? Through humans, through people now filled with God's own spirit who make disciples of Jesus, who is the glory of God. So as disciples of Jesus make more disciples of Jesus, the world is increasingly filled with his glory. That's what we were created in his image for. And that's what we've been saved unto and into. So sometimes a good question to ask Rodney is not, what have we been saved from, but what have we been saved to? That changes a lot. That really does. And I suspect in here that there's two camps of people. There are those who would be the professional Christians that you would see at the front of a church who do want to separate life from what they're preaching on a Sunday week after week. And this sort of talk would make them a little bit nervous. And yet there would probably be other people who have always wanted to share their faith but have felt totally inadequate because they don't feel that they would have all the answers if someone asked them a tricky question. And yet this says, no, live it out. Just your ordinary everyday life, as the scripture calls it, live that out in front of people. That must be enormously freeing for some. It is. And I've found that increasingly we've been living this way for 
25 years, maybe something like that now, versus more of a programmatic, traditional church experience. And it is, though, I feel like it's what we were created for. There's really no going back to only checking the box, you know, and now here, at least in the States, it's, you know, 1.3 times a month, your super committed Christians go to a church service and then they go back to kind of living their life and waiting for the afterlife. It, it really is uh, a very, very different way of understanding our faith and living it. And yet I, I think it is the, what we were created for. Now, interestingly enough, that verse in the New Testament where Jesus says, the truth will set you free. We all love that verse as Christians, especially if you want to win an argument. Well, the truth will set you free, Rodney. You know? <laughs> but if we back up just a bit in that verse, it's in John 8, Jesus is saying, and I'm going to paraphrase it just a bit, not much. You can, everybody can go and re-look it up. But he says, if you'll walk in my ways, if you'll be my disciples, in other words, walk in his ways, then you'll come to know the truth and that truth will set you free. Now, notice the order there. If you'll be a disciple, if you'll walk in Jesus' ways, then, huge then, you'll come to know the truth hmm, and that truth will set you free. But the way I was raised in the church and taught in seminary and even pastored for years was we flipped that 180. We said, well, if you believe what we say is truth, and by the way, all Christians believe the exact same things, wink, uh, then I'm going to lead you in this magic Jesus in your heart prayer. You won't find that one in scripture, but I'm going to do it with you. It's a good thing. And then you'll get set free. You won't feel super free, but you're going to get set free. And then we're going to disciple you except most churches don't do a whole lot of that part. So the order is believe the truth, get set free, get discipled. But Jesus said, if you'll be my disciple, walk in my ways, then you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And he's not talking about the global hell avoidance. You look at the context, he's talking about, hey, if you walk in my ways with my family and realize the generosity that our father has and that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he loves us and he knows our needs, You'll come to know the truth that that's all yours. Ring in the robe. You're the beloved son and daughter. And you'll get set free of worrying and being your own provision and being selfish and scarcity mentality. And that truth will set you free. That's what he's talking about. When that dime dropped for us, we started just inviting people to walk in the ways of Jesus with us. And we're not doing it perfectly, but led by the Spirit increasingly, I hope, I believe. And as they did, we realized people were moving from unbelief to belief. They were coming to know the truth about God and Christ and what he says is true of them in all kinds of different areas of their life and getting set free. It produces a very different type of Christian and Christianity, and it really becomes a lifestyle. And the pressure's off because I'm not trying to, quote, get everyone saved. That's God's work. We're doing what Jesus said. Make disciples. Invite them to walk in my ways, just like I've done with you. And they'll come to know the truth, and that truth will set them free. That is a beautiful and freeing way. Like, the pressure's off. And I imagine there's a lot of people listening at the moment who are saying, this really is resonating with me. This is something that I think is amazing, and I wish I'd heard it sooner. I want to start living that way, but how? I'm already involved in in church on Sunday, and, and I'm involved in, in a prayer meeting midweek, and how do I then transition? Do I need to just say no to that church or do I need to do something different? How do I incorporate this way of living into my own life? Well, there might be 
bigger, harder changes ahead. But I we're not big advocates like, well, quit your church or stop serving others in your church. Or not at all. We are people are the church, and those are our brothers and sisters. However, I do believe that discipleship is in fact meant to be our lifestyle, not a set of knowledge acquisitional accomplishments or passing ons or whatever. And we we always say this starts in the mirror, believing what God says is true of us as his family of missionary servants. That's who we are. We're Trinitarian in our identity, just a father, son, spirit. We were created in that image. That's true of us. That makes us family. God's our father. Uh, we're servants like Jesus. He says, as I was sent, so I send you as a servant, breathed his own breath on them, sends them. That's missionaries. We live like a family of missionary servants if we believe what God says. And then that starts changing our table. So people ask all the time, hey, what, what would be the very first thing you'd lead your church to do if if you were the pastor and, and they had been maybe more traditionally organized and formed and understanding and practice? What would, what would be the first thing you'd do? I'd say, hey, let's have everybody in our community, big or small, let's all start having one not yet believing person or couple, you know, someone you know, a friend, so not a target, but, you know, a friend. One not yet believing person or couple over for dinner just once a week. And we're not going to try to sell them anything or close the deal or, you know, give them a bunch of tracks when they leave or any of that. We're just going to love them and treat them like family, not like guests. And we're all going to do that, the whole church. So let's say there's a hundred of us. Well, we're going to have, you know, and then we're couples. So we're going to have 50 meals this week with not yet believing people. Just love them. See how that goes. Let the spirit guide that time. And then on Sunday, we're going to talk about how that went and what we learned. Maybe we'll do that for six weeks. (laughs) <laughs> and see what happens. I believe that that church would be transformed just through something they're already doing. They're already having meals. Most of us eat every day. So maybe it's a lunch, maybe it's a breakfast or a brunch or it's a coffee, but everybody in the church, we're going to have one meal a week or you know dessert or something like that with a not yet believing friend or couple. And we're going to trust God for how that goes. And then next week we'll invite someone else. And if you're not sure who to invite, well, I would suggest pray and ask God. i I would guarantee he's got lots of people queued up. (laughs) That would transform things. Now, that's just a beginning stage, Rodney, but that's kind of how it starts is we've got to begin to believe we're God's family and he's got a lot of kids out there that are far from dad. They don't know him. They don't trust him. They don't understand their brother, Jesus, their Lord and Savior. In Hebrews, Jesus says he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I love thinking of him that way. Wow, he sees me as a brother. That means I'm his brother. Like we got a lot of kids in the family that are far from dad. What if we invite him to the table, which is really God's table? I wasn't born with this. He provides it. He provides the food on all that. That would start to change us. I think those are some of the beginnings of what that would look like. It's certainly a good start. And I suppose that even in our conversation today, it's it's really a start because you've been involved in this for a long time. You have a lot of experience in a lot of countries. Uh, you've been making this a lifestyle I'm wondering if people are interested in finding out more, what are some of the resources that you have, some of the books that you've written, the, your podcast? Tell me about the resources that are available for people who want to start thinking in this way. Yeah, well, thanks for asking that. We were pretty big on resourcing people because we're making disciples who we want to see make more disciples. 
and I try to put out a whole lot of stuff. I think Jesus is right when he tells us to count the costs before you build a house. So if this sounds really, really attractive, uh, this is not a light switch we throw, but it's something I think it's worth counting the costs of what is my life sort of wrapped around? Where are my passions? Where do I give my time and resources to? And then let the Spirit guide you in that. So I would say if they wanted to hear a lot more of this and how the gospel speaks into all of everyday life in super normal ways, that's what our podcast is. It's called the Everyday Disciple Podcast. We just had our six-year anniversary every Monday for six years, by God's grace. We speak to an awful lot of just normal, everyday life and work and parenting and entrepreneurship and church and eldership, everything, because we're just normal Christians ourselves. And we show how does the gospel speak to that and a lot of other guests and things like that as well. So that's called the Everyday Disciple Podcast. But at our website, everydaydisciple.com, there are all kinds of free resources there ebooks and books. I've published several books. People can find them there on the site. They can download different resources. There's tools for assessing your own life or how's our church doing at making disciples in this type of way or what would we need to do to get started. So yeah, at everydaydisciple.com, we give away an awful lot of resources. But if you want to get to know me and be able to understand a little bit more how this speaks into all of life, I'd say start with the podcast. And of course, with six years of episodes, there's plenty to catch up on. <laughs> and I will put details in the, the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net so that people can, can find that. I'm wondering, though, if you've been doing this for a number of years and providing resources and training for a number of years, there must be a number of people right across the world, in fact, who have started to live in this way. What's been your feedback from people as they've started to enter in this new kind of lifestyle, this discipleship lifestyle? It's a pretty humbling thing when you get used by God to see people set free and set free from sort of a performance-based spirituality where we're trying to measure up and the sort of the world system of what you do equals who you are and your value. When you get set free from that, and I'm talking about regular people and even leaders in churches, pastors, elders, and all that. And the, the phrase that has come up so often that we really use it a lot is people say, I feel like I've grown in my spiritual freedom and increased in relational peace with people. That makes so much sense because when we go back to the beginning of the story of God in the garden, the things that are broken because of the fall, because of sin, is Adam and Eve, humans, our great grandparents, their relate their their relationship with God, and then ultimately their relationship with each other as they start to hide and blame and all that. And when we get set free by the gospel and it starts to speak into everything now, it's good news for today. Well, we start to feel free before the Father. We realize what Jesus says, it is finished, is true, that we don't have to prove anything, earn anything. We're starting to see the good news of the gospel spoken into and experienced in all of life, not just a, uh, I'm waiting for that big reward someday at the end, but in between, I'm going to be doing behavioral modification. It's like, no, I'm loved the same either way. So there's great spiritual freedom. And when I realize God sees me that way and I start to treat people that way as well, well, then I lose that fear of what they might think, or maybe they don't want to come over for dinner, but I'm going to go ahead and invite them anyway and treat them like family, not like guests. Relationships open up in such ways that you go, they're kind of easy. We're not afraid of everything anymore. That spiritual freedom and relationship peace, that's what we hear from people. Over and over, we've heard 
from from families, whole families, from pastors and all. Like I wish I'd have heard this and and been able to walk with you and get coaching and mentorship 30 years ago because I feel like I'm unpeeling the onion so much. It's taken a while <laughs> to get to a point of this freedom. And now I realize for years I've been sort of heaping more due to be distortion and and weight on my people. So now by God's grace, he's got to help me to unwind a lot of that. So that's a that's a powerful thing that when we hear that, my wife and I, because we coach together, we coach as a couple and we coach couples. So it's really a whole lifestyle thing and, and sort of welcome to our family. Um, when we hear that, that keeps us going. And, and we give we give the bulk of our time to, to coaching and mentorship of couples in community. I think that this really is going to be something that people will want to find out more about. And as I say, I will put links to those resources, to the website, to the podcast in the show notes at bleedingdaylight.net. I'm sure that people will be sharing this episode of Bleeding Daylight around so that others can jump on as well, but also be pointing their friends to those resources. Caesar, it has been a delight to talk to you. We've only started to scratch the surface, but thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Bleeding Daylight. Please help us to shine more light into the darkness by sharing this episode with others. For further details and more episodes, please visit bleedingdaylight.net.